Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. My mom and dad came down from Cumming, Georgia yesterday, spent the afternoon with us. Amanda cooked out barbecue ribs and barbecue chicken and homemade potato salad and homemade baked beans and fresh cut cantaloupe and watermelon and peach cobbler and she asked me what kind of cake I wanted for my birthday and I said a hot banana pudding is what I want and so she made me one and put a candle in the middle of it only one because to put the whole number that I needed was against the fire marshal code she said So my mom and dad came down. My dad's 74. And uh, 74, watching your dad at 74 is uh, is tough for me. Because I see him uh, walking slower than he used to. I see his strength diminish from what it used to be, even though at 74 he's quite a strong man. But uh, it hurts me to see the man that I love so deeply, uh, grow weaker as he grows older. When I thought about reading this passage of Scripture uh, a few days ago, Paul's opening words to the church at Colossae, I couldn't help but think about my dad. My dad, uh, every night before he goes to bed, he kneels beside his bed And he prays out loud. He's done it for as long as I can remember. I was born in 1960, and the earliest, among the earliest recollections I have around bedtime was my dad would go into uh, my parents' bedroom and turn off the light, and before he would bed for the night, he would kneel beside his bed and he would pray. My dad prays in private much like he prays in church. He's a country preacher. He's a country pastor. Next year, he will have pastored for 50 years. Now, it doesn't make him a better man that he prays out loud. I know some very godly people who pray, and and, uh, you never hear their prayers, but you can certainly see the impact of them. But my dad has just always prayed out loud. And as a boy, I remember uh, around bedtime when dad would go into his bedroom to pray, Knowing that he was going to pray out loud, I would sneak to the door of his bedroom. I was careful not to let him know I was there. I wanted to hear him pray. And I know that it's selfish. I will admit up front how selfish what I'm about to say sounds and probably is, but I wanted to hear him pray because I knew that my dad had a habit in his prayers of praying for each of his children by name. One at a time, he would pray certain things for all of his children, but then he would pray certain things for each child depending upon that child's circumstances. And so selfishly, I would sit at the entrance of my mom and dad's bedroom listening to my dad pray because I wanted to hear what dad prayed when he prayed for me. It was important to me, and as soon as I heard what he prayed for me, 
and then listened for the rest of his prayer, I would get up and creep to my bed where I would try in feeble efforts to pray as he did. Have you ever listened to someone pray? You knew they were going to pray. If they prayed out loud, you knew they were going to pray. And you knew also that in their prayer, they usually, if not always, prayed for you and you listened to see what they were going to say. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would pray for you if he were here today and he called you by name in a prayer and he prayed? Not just doing as I do so often, just mentioning your name personally, although that's a good thing to do too, but mentioning it and also praying something specific and unique to you. You ever wonder what the great missionary, the Apostle Paul, would pray if he prayed for you? Well, we actually can somewhat know what Paul would pray, mainly because when Paul wrote his letters, he told his listeners that he was praying for them. And not only did he tell them that he was praying for them, he also went on to tell them what he prayed for them when he prayed for them. And that is the case as he opens up his letter to the church at Colossae. Keep in mind, the Colossian church was not a church Paul organized. Most of the times he wrote to somebody, he he wrote to a church that he himself had organized. He knew them personally. He had had a a vested interest in them, but that's not the case with the Colossian church. He, He did not organize the Colossian church. His good friend Epaphras organized the Colossian church. And so he was kind of indirectly uh, affiliated with Colossae. But nonetheless, he prayed for them. And in his letter to them, after he opens up with the greeting, telling them who he is, who he's with, Timothy, and offering that Judeo-Christian, Grecian uh, salutation, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he's been praying for them. Now, I know that a lot of times you and I are disappointed in our prayer lives. And the main reason is we never fully learn how to pray. Not fully. I mean, we learn how to pray, but we don't learn how to fully, fully pray. We're constantly students in the school of prayer. And as we pray, there will be a lot of times that we will look at what we pray for and we don't get what we pray for. Or... Uh, we will come back and say, well, uh, God answered the prayer, but he didn't answer it the way that I was kind of wanting him to. And, and that's true. But there is always a tinge of disappointment when we have to, have to come out with that kind of statement. We'd much rather say, man, I prayed for such and such to happen, and I want you to know within three days, God gave me exactly what I prayed for in exactly the way I prayed for it. And there will be times when that will happen, but there will be... Uh, Many times that we will pray and God will answer in a totally different way. And the way that he answers it from a human perspective will be, well, disappointing. You pray for somebody to be healed of a disease and they die. And of course, we come back and we say, well, God really did heal them better than any. And that's exactly what he did do, but that's still not exactly what we wanted him to do. And so there's a tinge of disappointment Here Paul is praying for the Colossian church. And I think that what he prayed for them 
is what he would pray for you. And I think what he prayed for them is what he would pray for me and what he would pray for us. So what did he pray when he prayed for the Colossians? I want you to notice, first of all, that the first thing I think Paul did when he prayed for these people was he thanked God for them. If Paul were here today and he was standing in front of us and we said, Brother Paul, uh, before we conclude this service, would you just lead us in prayer? And he says, I'll be glad to do that, but give me some time because I want to call each of these people out by name. The first thing that he would do for each one of you is say, God, I want to thank you for Lindsay, and I want to thank you for Rachel, and I want to thank you for Andy, and I want to thank you for Mark. God inspired Paul to open up his prayer with thanksgiving to these people. Uh, This is in verses 4 through 7. First of all, he thanked God for their faith in Christ. Verses 3 and 4, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul would thank God for your faith in Christ. Second, he would thank God because you love people. The last part of verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and for the love you have for all God's people. Now, I know what we more often than perhaps we should talk about in church, we talk about the squabbles, we talk about the conflicts and the disagreements and the, and the uh, uh, bickering between folks. I don't know why we think that is so unusual. After all, we do call our church family, family. And while we will stand up for family, while nobody else will, it's also with family that we bicker the most. If, uh, if we're bickering with someone who's not family, we normally don't bicker with them. We just avoid them. Hello? Is that right? It is. It is. But if it's family... We just bicker with them because it's, well, they're familiar. They're so familiar we can love them, and they're so, so familiar we can bicker with them. Is that not right? It is right. And so I don't know why the bickering should, should uh, uh, surprise us or even disappoint us. But isn't it also true that some of the greatest love you've ever experienced has been from people in, within your church family? Isn't that the truth? Isn't it true that during the worst of times, Those worst of times brought out the best of people, and quite often those people from whom the best came were people in your church family. He says, I thank God for your faith in Christ, and I thank God for your love for all God's people. And he says, I also also thank God, verse 5, for your hope in heaven. He says, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard. I see people hurting in our world, a lot of hurting people. I see diseased people hurting and their loved ones hurting because they seem helpless to do anything about it. And when I see those kinds of circumstances and when I experience them myself, you know what I'm most thankful for? You know what I'm most thankful for? I'm thankful for heaven. I'm thankful that death is not a period at the end of the sentence. It's a comma in the middle. It's just a pause with the best on the other side of the comma. 
I'm grateful for heaven. Paul says, I'm thankful for your faith. I'm thankful for your love. I'm thankful for your hope in heaven. And then he says, I'm thankful for your love of the gospel. Your love of the gospel, he says, about which, middle of verse 5, about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. And in the same way, he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Do you love the gospel? You say, well, what in the world is gospel? That's a word I only use at church. I don't use it around the dinner table. We don't use it at work. Gospel, what does it mean? It means good news. Good news. Isn't that what we really are desperate for in our lives? Regardless of where you are in life, aren't you longing for good news? And when it comes to our eternal destiny, and when it comes to our salvation in Christ, and when it comes to an eternal hope in heaven, isn't that the greatest good news of all? He says, I'm thankful to God for your love of the good news. And then finally, he says, he says I'm thankful to God for the people who are influential in bringing you to Christ. Verse 7. You learned it, that is the gospel, from Epaphras. I like it when we, when we affirm people by name who are influential in leading us to Christ. Call them by name. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Do you remember the people who were most instrumental in leading you to receiving Christ as your Savior and following Him in your daily life? Do you recall the people by name who were influential in leading you in a Christ-centered way? Paul opened up his prayer by thanking God for them. He would thank God for you. Second, Paul would pray for God to help you know God's will. Verses 9 and the first part of verse 10. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. I want you to hear this. Are you ready? There is nothing so important as the will of God. And there is nothing so personally important than the will of God for your life. God's will, Paul says, is revealed through His Spirit. And so Paul prayed that the Colossians would know God's will, not so that they could boast of what they know. That's not why Paul wants us to know God's will. But he wants us to know God's will so that we will live lives worthy of the Lord Jesus who has saved us and called us so that we will please Him. You and I need to be seekers after God's will. And Paul prayed. First, thank you, God, for them. And second, God, help them to know your will for their life. Number three, God would pray that you do something spiritually fruitful with your life. Paul would pray that you would do something spiritually fruitful with your life. The last part of verse 10, he says... I'm asking God to show you His will, verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. John Piper is a uh, 
Baptist pastor up in the Northwest. He's written several books. Normally, I'm not that much of a fan of him because he is a very strong predestinationist, more, more predestinationist than I'm willing to swallow. However, he has written some things that are deep, 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 and phenomenal. He wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. He wrote it primarily for young people, but it could touch anybody of any age. The whole basis of his book is that we are prone to waste our lives on insignificance, or we're prone to waste our lives on temporary things that end up destroying our lives, or at the very least, blemishing our lives. And he is urging people to seek God's will above all else and to uh, be people who, in doing so, in following God's will, don't waste their lives. Paul would pray for you what he prayed for them, which was that you do something impactful with your life, that you do something spiritually fruitful with your life, which means you help other people to come to Christ just like other people helped you to come to Christ. It means that you grow in the knowledge of God's will and that you be obedient more and more in your life through following God's will. God wants you to be fruitful. Paul is praying for you to be fruitful. It is never God's will that you be saved and then stay where you are for the rest of your lives. In fact, it would be a travesty. Paul said in one place that those kind of people are saved, but yet so as by fire. In other words, they're saved but scorched. They're just barely saved. God wants more for you. He doesn't just want more from you. He wants more for you. He is for you. Paul is praying for you. Number four, Paul prayed for them to have endurance. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance. Endurance. Why do we need endurance? Why did Paul pray for them to have endurance? Let me tell you why. Because Paul knew what so many Christians don't think is true. But it is true. He knew that life is tough. He also knew that living the Christian life is the toughest thing you'll ever do. He also knew that life from time to time will throw curveballs at you for which you and I are not prepared. He also knew that God will allow such curveballs to be thrown at you and me. And so Paul knew that one of the, one of the main things they would need in their lives is endurance. In 1990, there was a lady named Georgine Johnson, lived in Cleveland, Ohio. She was a bit depressed after turning 42 years old. She decided that she wanted to be in better shape for the second half of her life than she was the first half. And so Georgine began exercising. Then she, be- she started jogging. And after she jogged a few weeks, she started running. And she decided that what she really needed to do was set a goal on which she could focus. So she entered herself in a 10K race. That'd be a six-mile race. And she began training for a six-mile race. The day of the race, she was so pumped and ready to go that she showed up early. She arrived early and was soon distracted by all the other runners who had also come to run this race as they prepped and they stretched and they got ready. And before you knew it, the horn sounded to start the race and the runners lined up and Georgine followed the pack to the starting line and they were off. Four miles into the race with no turnaround in sight, Georgine, running beside a fellow runner, looked at that person and said, when are we going to start heading back? 
She said this. She said, he just kind of looked at me strangely like, are you for real? It was then that Georgine realized that she was not in the 10K race. She was in the Cleveland Marathon. That's a 26-mile race. The 26-mile race started about an hour earlier than the 10K race, and she had gotten there early, been distracted, and so she started running with all the 26-mile marathon people. Do you know what? She ran all 26 miles. Do you know how far she had run the longest prior to that 26 miles? Eight miles. That's the most she had run, but she ran the full 26-mile marathon. And somebody asked her after the race was over what was going through her mind as she faced this challenge, realizing what she did. And here's what she said, quote, This is not the race I trained for, and this is not the race I entered, but for better or for worse, it was the race I was in. Where you are right now may not be the race you trained for or prepared for or even the race that you thought you entered. But wake up, ladies and gentlemen, it is the race you are in. And God is with you through that race and He will enable you to do far more than you thought was possible to do. Paul prayed for endurance. And then finally, Paul prayed that the Colossians would never forget where God had brought them from. You know, one of the things that the greatest men and women of Christianity would pray for you, they'd pray that you not forget where God brought you from. Well, where did God bring us from? Verse 13 says, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. From where has God brought us? He's brought us from darkness into light. He's brought us from loneliness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. He's brought us from worthlessness to redemption, and He paid for it. He has brought us from blood guilt to absolutely snow-white clean forgiveness. Paul doesn't want you to forget where God has brought you from. In truth, what, God, what Paul would pray for you probably depends on your circumstances. The circumstances for the Colossians was that they were leaning toward seeing Jesus as a God among many gods, as a mediator among many, many mediators, and by doing that, they were diminishing the significance of Jesus in their lives. You know what I see in many people today, including myself? I see the temptation to diminish the importance of Jesus. Jesus, Paul says, is to be above all else. He's to be absolutely number one in your life. And every day, God is calling you to make that decision. That's what Paul would pray for you. That's what Jesus would pray for you. And that's my prayer today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that every person in this room would seek you above all else. Lord, I thank you for these people here. They chose to be here. They didn't have to be here. So grateful for them. Lord, I pray that you would give us knowledge of your will, that you'd help us to live lives that make a difference and that are not wasted. 
that you'd give us endurance for the toughness that we're in and that lies yet ahead. Lord, I pray that you would help us never to forget where you brought us from. Lord, I pray for those who are here who have never invited you to be their Savior. They're still in the darkness. They're still in the loneliness. They still stand in the guilt. Lord, I pray that today they'd make the decision to invite you into their lives to go from darkness to light, from loneliness to the kingdom of Jesus, from guilt to to forgiveness, from worthlessness to redemption. Lord, whatever decision that others need to make in this place, Lord, help us to do it. Help us to please you today with what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.